The number one question we get from listeners is, do we have a written step-by-step roadmap to guide you on how to train your dog? We don't, but Standing Stone Supply does. They're the creators of the complete step-by-step dog training program that takes your dog from brand new puppy and gets it well on its way to that finished dog you've always dreamed of. They've mapped out the timelines to help guide you, the videos for every step of the way to show you, and even have the needed gear made into shopping lists to make it easy to supply you. Check out the course at StandingStoneSupply.com to gain unlimited access for all current as well as future lessons and be sure to use the code GDIY to save 10% at sign up. Being an upland hunter in the south nowadays unfortunately means a lot of travel to try and find birds for my dogs. This means it's even more important that my map scouting is reliable to justify the effort. This is where Onyx comes in. I can honestly say that Onyx directly impacts the level of success I find on my trips. Whether it's the private versus public land boundaries, the expanding number of unique layers and features by state, or the 3D mapping capabilities, my initial step in planning my hunting trip starts with Onyx. To know where you're going, you have to first know where you stand. Check out Onyx Hunt Maps and use code G. GDIY 20 at checkout to save 20%. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. I mean, it's different for everybody, right? Like some people prefer to do it my way. Some people don't. I mean, one way isn't any better than the other. You either have respect for the dog you're training and do a good job with it, or you don't. How you get there doesn't matter. One thing we all love to do with our dogs is hit the road and go on new adventures. In order for that to happen, we have to be able to safely and efficiently travel with our dogs. Dakota 283 is dedicated to building unparalleled pet protection and tailgate lifestyle products for you and your best friends. Their one-piece roto-molded kennels have many options such as the Hero Series for military-grade crates, T1 low-profile kennels that will fit truck beds with tonneau covers, and their most popular G3 Series that's available in any size you'll need. Dakota not only offers many different sizes and styles of kennels, they also offer products and accessories to help with food and water transport, truck bed storage, and even grooming stations. Have a new puppy and only want to buy one kennel instead of buying multiple ones as they grow? Look at the Forever Kennel Insert Divider that gives you the ability to buy a kennel now and adjust the size inside as needed. No matter what you need to get you on your next adventure with your dog, Dakota has it for you. Check them out now at dakota283.com. Your new 283 lifestyle is just one click and free shipping away. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another week of GDIY. Joe is joining us this week from Texas. Joe, how's it going? The great state of Texas, baby. You had a chance to get out and go chase a few quail down there yet? No, leaving uh, leaving tomorrow, and we'll we'll be there uh, for a couple of days. Actually, I think we're we're we usually do like a two day hunt, and we're actually uh, my father in law took off a day, and so did I, and so we're going to go out there Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, chase some chase some quail, a little a little bit uh, kind of on the border of uh, Texas and Oklahoma. Gotcha. Hot spot in your locations, man. I mean, I, 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 I don't know if you know this, but uh, Texas is kind of a big state. So that yeah, border you, goes for, for a little bit. You told them which region you're going to be in. All the birds are going to die now. Hey, guys, 
there's quail in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, what the, this episode this week is actually, it, it went on a little long, so we're going to kind of make this intro a little short. And with you being out of town, uh, I've got a lot going on this week myself. So uh, we're just going to keep this intro short and sweet. Uh, we're joined this week with Angie Barron again uh, from Elite Gun Dogs up in Canada. Uh, she comes on to talk about uh, p- early puppy development, get everything from before you get the puppy home, getting the house ready, and then just getting the dog in there. And uh, really, we cover a lot of different topics. And one thing I like talking to Angie about is she has a bunch of different methods that the average person in our world re- really doesn't d- go by. And and a lot of the methods that you're going to hear on in this episode, I don't go by. Uh, so, but that's one thing that we love doing here is talking to other people about different methods. And, and it's always fun talking to people that really has a, have a good understanding of how dogs learn and behavioral theory and how they go about training it. So there's some there's some great tips and advice on here and the methods, you know, it may or may not be your cup of tea, but, uh, give it a listen and hope you come away with something. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all about different viewpoints and, and keeping an open mind about stuff. And I, I think, you know, Angie by no means does it in a way where, you, you know, she, she's coming off as, you know, telling you what to do or that her way's the best. It's just, uh, Absolutely so, and that's, what's really cool is that, I mean, she, the way she actually like puts it, it's like, Oh, I, I never actually even thought about that way. So yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed the episode. Yeah, absolutely. So, so like I said, we're going to keep this short and sweet. Uh, I don't even have a tip of the week, uh, for the, these people. I don't have, I, I'm pretty busy, so I haven't had time to really give it much thought this week and nobody like, sent me anything. So, uh, no tip of the week for you freeloaders. Yeah, I mean, it's not like you're like having a kid or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, well, that that's in a in a few days, but yeah, there's there's a lot going on over here, so I just haven't given it much thought. And uh, really, like I, I've said in the past few weeks, I really want the tip of the week uh, to start coming to from uh, the listeners and, and helping each other out. So, uh, you know, guys, shoot me some tip of the weeks, and it, it can come through uh, Facebook or Instagram messages, or shoot it to us at gundog at yourself at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, we might, might put it out there and try and help other people with your uh, tip and ideas. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, we've got, uh, we've got some merch in the works. Um, to you know do some giveaways around that so so people can get some gdiy merchandise and i think that will be one of the ways that we'll do it if you guys send in a tip um Mm -hmm. and we like it we put it on the podcast um we'll be sending you a hat or a shirt or or maybe maybe something else gdiy that um is still in a still in the works but Mm -hmm. i actually had an idea of uh of kind of starting something where we would read maybe a a rating yeah, right yeah, review, that, you know. Yeah, that that'd be uh good. You know, we do need. We say every week we do need reviews, and uh, you know, again, we don't really understand the algorithm or why it helps uh, helps us out as much as it does, but it it really does, especially more specifically on Apple Podcasts. And uh, so, yeah, you know, we do read the reviews. We just can't respond to the reviews directly to people, so uh, we do appreciate that. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a good idea, Joe. If you wanted to, you know, read a a quick review on. Uh, that somebody left for us and uh guys you know 
please go leave us a rating and review on Apple uh, specifically. Yeah. Well, you know, Nick, I know you were telling me how sad you were today. Um, so I just wanted to cheer you up with it, with a review. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, so this one is from coach uh, Mackenstash or Mackenstack. It's, it's one of those. If, if, uh, uh, th- this was actually left uh, last week, um, and he says, rapidly becoming one of my favorite bird dog podcasts. Just finished listening to the second half of the podcast with the Carters. I will be picking up a pup in two weeks, so the timing of the show was excellent. Thanks. That's from George. So, George, uh, if you can contact us either on um, Instagram or, or send us an email at gundogityourself at gmail.com, we'll make sure we, we send you over a sticker uh, that you can put on a uh, the kennel for your new pup or or your truck yeah something like that and then yeah i i like that idea joe uh let's keep it rolling and yeah like you said earlier you know as we develop some uh better merch or, or products we can send something out better than just uh just a sticker but george i we appreciate that and glad you get some enjoyment and uh any good quality small bit of information that we could provide you you know hope it helps you out and thanks for listening and taking your time to leave a review and joe if you don't have anything else i think we can get to the episode that's it wish me luck guys i need to get into some birds go kill a man get jack out there and have fun there we go have a great week guys picture this you just finished a long day's hunt or a long day in the training field grooming your next champion you've run through your entire string of dogs in anticipation for the next fall you think the day's over it's not though your day's not over until you let that ugly dog hunt no hunting or training session is complete without capping it off with one of the spirits from ugly dog distillery they're michigan raised and purebred handcrafted spirits they have everything you need from vodka and gin to your more traditional after hunt choice kentucky bourbon Head on over to UglyDogDistillery.com to check availability within your state. And if you have an upcoming event that's alcohol-friendly, then be sure to reach out to us and see if we can add another Ugly Dog to the lineup. We'll tell you right now, we aren't much on flavored whiskeys, but you have to try their peanut butter whiskey. Unlike other peanut butter whiskeys out there, Ugly Dogs is made with real Kentucky bourbon and not just grain alcohol with syrup. So after your next hunt or a long day of testing and you're trying to decide what to drink, reach for the bottle with Ruger, the German wire hair pointer on it. It was handcrafted by people just like us, dog people. Every adventure starts somewhere. Make sure yours includes an ugly dog at your side. Explore responsibly. All right, everybody. Welcome back. I have Angie Barron on the line again with us. Angie, how you doing? Not too bad. It's good to be back again. I was about to say, I'm glad to have you back. You know, it's... (laughs) when we recorded the last one, I don't think we realized how uh, popular your episode was going to be. I was telling you the other day that you you really are one of the most popular episodes we've done. And uh, I can't tell you how many times I have people say that they go back and re-listen to that episode. Well, that's so good because usually you start talking about behavior theory and people are like, oh, <laughs> this is boring. Well, I mean, I'm telling you, most of the people that come and say that, you know, oh, my friend told me to listen to y'all. I'm like, well, which episode did he send you? The behavior theory one with Angie. I'm like, okay, there you go. That's a great one. But, you know, for for those who are listening and maybe didn't catch that, uh, that was episode 43, behavior theory and training the why. And uh, Angie, I can honestly say you were really the catalyst for getting me going. And I've been on this huge behavior theory kick since we kind of linked up and started talking. So uh, thank you for getting me hooked on uh, that that subject. Good. I'm really glad to hear that. That makes me so happy. 
<laughs> so, so uh, I reached out to you to have you back on again. You know, we've been kind of on this little, I've been calling it a puppy series and we've talked to, to a few people on a bunch of different topics and I, I knew I wanted to get you back on and I kind of sent you a list of what I had in mind for this uh, quote unquote puppy series. And you said that you wanted to hit on the early puppy development stages. Yeah. Uh, from the stage of bringing the puppy home to really setting it up and for success in the long run. So that's what we're here to talk about tonight. Excellent. So I guess, you know, we, we just covered with the Carters, selecting your puppy, picking out the right puppy and stuff like that. So we don't need to go into too much detail, but let's kind of pick up from that standpoint, kind of give us some up how you go about picking the right puppy for you and making sure you get the right puppy fit uh, for your goals. So I was actually a little nervous about talking about puppy development without first talking about puppy selection. But honestly, the Carters covered it super, super well. Honestly, I have no complaints about anything that they said in their episode. So if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it because it's a very informative episode and it meets up a lot with how I kind of pick puppies. Um, but just to kind of give you like the basic summary of what's important to me when I'm looking for a dog is number one, I like to see kind of depth of genetic quality. And so basically what that means is that I would rather have a dog out of a litter from parents that did well in the field, but they have a long history of producing consistently good dogs that do well in the field, rather than a couple of dogs that were superstars in the field, but were kind of just you know, you rolled the dice and you rolled 12 and you just happened to get really good, lucky that that was a good dog, but there's not really a lot in the pedigree there that indicates any consistency in the performance. Yeah, no, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. You know, you, you're going with consistency over long periods of time, but, you know, there might be some just MVP mixed into that line, but that doesn't make up for all the other members of that pedigree. So that makes a lot of mm -hmm. sense in my opinion. So, well, and like you were talking about with Scott Caldwell a couple, like a few episodes back about training overshadowing genetics, like we can guide genetics and we can kind of shape genetics, but we cannot change genetics. So what yeah. you get is kind of what you get and you have to figure out like the key here is figuring out how to work around the shortcomings rather than basically trying to stuff every dog through the same program. You kind of have to adapt yourself to the dog a little bit. But I mean, with that said, like I said, you roll the dice enough times, eventually you're going to roll a 12. So if you've listened to this episode on puppy selection and you're like, oh man, I screwed up. I totally got from the wrong breeder. I got the wrong dog. <laughs> like, don't worry about it. Seriously. Like, so for those of you that don't know, I spent a lot of time in the thoroughbred horse racing industry before getting into dogs on a professional level. <laughs> and there was incidents like you look at a horse. So there's a horse, her name was Love the Chase. And she was bought at auction for, I think, like $7,000 as a broodmare. So for breeding purposes and the guys that bought her, someone would made a quip off the side, like her stallion, like the stallion that she was out of was 
had some, basically her grandfather was a nice horse and that was about it. There was nothing on the mare's side that was really nice. She wasn't really that nice of a horse. And somebody made a quip off the side that said only a couple of dumbasses would buy that horse. <laughs> and so these guys ran with it. They literally called themselves DAP racing, which stands for dumbass partners. <laughs> and the first foal that mare had was California Chrome. If you're not familiar with him, won the Kentucky Derby, won the Preakness Stakes, almost had the <laughs> Belmont, made over $14 million, is standing stud in Japan right now, and is actually apparently doing quite well over there. Nice. Uh, well, and I mean, it, it's a testament to papers. Don't make the dog. It, it's a great starting point and do your homework, you know, set yourself up for success the best way you can, because it does mean something, you know, it yep. on average, but it, it is not a make or break situation. You know, there's a lot of people with some really nice dogs and or horses out there that, you know, maybe they don't have the papers because they just didn't test or something like that. Or, you know, some people just really don't care about the registrations and, and the pedigrees it's, but you're setting yourself up for success by being able to check out the generations and lineage. Well, and just sorry to talk horses a little bit more here. Don't worry. It'll come back to dogs. It'll make <laughs> sense in a minute, but just, there was another horse. His name is the green monkey. And this horse broke two different records. One of which was that he was the most money ever paid for a thoroughbred yearling at a public auction. They paid $16 million for him Ooh. as a baby. He also broke the record for the biggest flop purchase in racing history. <laughs> he made a grand total of $10,000 on the track, which is peanuts for the kind of class that he was running in yeah. and was equally as big a flop in the breeding shed. Oh, yeah. $16 million down the drain. <laughs> Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, you truly never know. I mean, it, it is a crystal ball. It's just you do what you can to try and mm -hmm. set yourself up for success. But, you know, it, it, it's like, all right. Well, even the trainer that I worked for, he was uh, his claim to fame. So he was in the Horse Racing Hall of Fame. But one of his big claims to fame was that he was famous for getting horses to run beyond what their breeding basically said that they should have been able to achieve. So, I mean, you definitely can do that, but at the end of the day, the animals got to want it. Like there was another incident where he was in Kentucky and he was looking at a bunch of colts and there was two that were bred pretty much the same way. Um, they both had the same dad, basically. And he was deciding between the two of them. And one of them was kind of ugly and lanky and didn't look really good. And the other one was this really nice looking, like just had a lot of presence to him. So we ended up paying $22,000 for the nicer one. The other one that we passed over sold for $9,000 and it was Mind That Bird. If you don't know Mind That Bird, they made a movie about him. It's called 50 to 1 and it's about his Kentucky Derby win. <laughs> oh, man. Well, there, and like there. a lot of the times, like there was horses, like, I mean, I've seen people buy horses drunk. Yeah. And they were just looking for one more to put on the trailer. So they weren't coming home with an empty trailer and it was one of the best horses that's ever come out of their barn. Just so, I mean, down. just because you haven't really, I mean, there's a reason we look at genetics. Genetics absolutely do matter. They play a huge role in basically stacking the odds in your favor. It's still no guarantee, that's, but 
That's what I was about to say. It was odds. You know, you can luck out and you can get that once in a lifetime horse or what we're talking Mm -hmm. about tonight or dogs. You can luck out. We all know that guy that, you know, got that rescue and have no idea about the genetics. They can luck out, but the odds Mm -hmm. of lucking out and getting that just perfect dog without knowing the background and history, it's not exactly in your favor. So, well, and that trainer that I used to work for, one of the things that made him so good and was able to get horses to compete past what they should have been able to was the fact that he knew what to do with babies in those early stages and just getting them used to everything and building their confidence and all those early stages. And it's the same thing with dogs, right? You see people on the field trial circuit or in the hunt test circuit, and there's some people that will go through like 20 dogs. And one will be good. And there's other people that will go through 20 dogs and 19 of them are good. It's not that that person is lucky. It's because that person knows what to do with puppies. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you you don't have to be in this world that long to see trainers of that caliber. And and you really start to recognize Mm -hmm. it. So let's jump into the puppies and really setting them setting them and yourself up for success. So, you know, I did, I did, uh, ask the Carters this question. I, I want to get your take on it real quick at what, how old, what age do you recommend bringing your puppy home? If you have the choice in the matter. Between eight and nine weeks is kind of the sweet spot. Cause that's where I like to start doing a lot of my own stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also, I mean, for the breeders, like by the time that eight week, that eight week mark rolls around, like they're, they're done. Them, they're yeah. like, they're, these things aren't cute anymore. Get them <laughs> out of here. Yep. <laughs> so in that time frame, you know, you know that your puppy's on the ground, you know, you're waiting, you're, you're possibly selecting it. You know, you as a dog owner, you know, you, you know, you're getting this puppy home. What should you be doing to prepare for that puppy? You know, even as just getting the house in order, what should you start buying and getting the house ready for this puppy to, you know, make it the best scenario possible? Well, the first thing you want to do is you want to start going through the house and, you know, making sure the massive electrical cords behind the TV is (laughs) tucked away. And I've actually had people like, and they say to do this, actually, if you're baby proofing your house too, um, get down on all four legs and crawl around because it changes your perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then that way you can see what the dog can see. And I mean, if you're a first time puppy owner, there's going to be stuff that they find that you didn't even realize. Even as like, even as you raise a lot of puppies, sometimes it's just like, why are you into that? Yeah. Yep. I tell it, I tell everybody, Which, if you have to ask yourself, can the puppy reach that? You need to move it or put it up higher or, or string it up or something. Because if you have to ask, can the puppy reach it? It's too low. <laughs> yep. And so a big part of when you bring your puppy home is going to be management. For the love of God, crate train your dog. Even (laughs) if you don't think you need to do it, crate train your dog. And there's a number of reasons. There's a number of reasons for this. Like, I mean, for one, it's management. If you cannot be there to supervise the puppy, if you have a good sturdy crate that the puppy can't get out of, 
all they can get into is what's in that crate. Yep. Secondly, it's a good place. Like, so travel safety, right? You're out on the road, you're hunting. Your dog is way safer in a crate than he is bouncing around in the backseat. Now, like, I mean, granted, I mean, if that's not how you want to do things, that's totally fine. Like, I'm not here to judge, but it is safer to have your dog in a crate, not only for your dog, but also for you. Because if you do get into an accident, that dog turns into a projectile. Yep. And that dog hitting you could mean the difference between you living and dying. Yeah. And then there's also the fact of, you know, you've just been on a hunt and you shot something over a slew and your dog's a stinky, nasty, rotting mess. And I don't really want that in my truck. Thank you. <laughs> no, absolutely. And just from a puppy standpoint, you, you start crate training. You, it's, it, I find it a lot easier to start getting in that routine. And that helps with everything from housebreaking to feed schedule to, you know, training and, and all of that. There's a lot of hidden advantages to crate training that besides just getting them away from being able to get into stuff. So like you said, housebreaking is another big one. Your housebreaking will go considerably faster if you crate train your dog. Um, A good trick, like even if you don't want to keep it there in the long run, Keep your crate next to a door because the less distance between puppy coming out of the crate and outside, the less likelihood there is of puppy peeing on the floor. And the more chances they have to rehearse that behavior, the more it's going to happen and the harder it's going to be get rid of. So if you have a dog that's just never peed in the house, that's not going to be something that's in their behavioral repertoire in the future unless they really have to go and they're going to explode in which case that's kind of your fault. (laughs) And the other thing that people don't think about too, like if your dog ever gets injured and needs to go spend an overnight trip at the vet, they are going to be so much less stressed at that vet. If they are at home in their crate, there's already so much going on. They're away from home. They're hurt. And it can actually mean the difference between your dog living and dying in some cases, if it's severe enough that that stress will just push them over the edge. And yeah. so if they're in the crate, they're going to be a lot happier. Yes. Yeah, so that is a very good point, especially for a first time puppy or dog owner that maybe haven't seen a dog like in a high anxiety situation, they can't calm down. I mean, it, it, you could just be sitting inside and I mean, they're, they're, their tongue is hanging out. They can't sit down. They can't calm down. They can't go to sleep. And you're right. If, if it is a, a, an emergency vet situation and they're not accustomed to being in a crate and just winding down, that could spell disaster for you. And it's something as simple as this crate training from the, the very start. That's, that is a, an important note right there. Uh, so Right. So you want to make sure that your crate's secure too, right? Because a lot of the times puppies can get out of those wire oh, crates. Yeah. Like not... As much with our hunting dogs, but with like breeds like Malinois that are working bred, like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're out of that wire crate, like nothing. Get the plastic fairy kennel. I know they're ugly, but it will save you (laughs) in the future from having to buy an aluminum one because your dogs learn to bust out of every crate that you have. And so you always want to feed in the crate as well, like give your dog their meals in the crate. And this has two purposes. One. It gets your dog comfortable in the crate and teaches them that it's kind of a place of relaxation. This is a good thing. The other thing is, too, is if you have other dogs, if you have children, this will go a long way for getting for 
not letting resource guarding start in the first place, mm-hmm. right? If your dog is just, here's your food, nothing's going to touch you. You're fine. This is your own private place. Relax, eat your meal. Then they don't, if they don't, if you don't give them a reason to get guardy, then like sometimes it's genetic, but generally speaking, like a lot of, even if it's a genetic resource guarding, just saying like, Hey, this is yours. Nobody's going to touch it. You're okay. Just take it out goes of the a long way. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's a good point. I haven't really thought about that. And I, I personally have not really fed in the crate from an early standpoint, but even just when I'm on hunting trips, overnight hunting trips, I do a lot of feeding in the crate. So, I mean, it pops up just, you know, when you're traveling and stuff like that. So, but I would say that I, I would venture to say that there are some people out there with these German hunting dogs that they can get out of wire crates uh, <laughs> pretty regularly, just like the Malinois and mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But uh, so, you know, we've touched on, on, you know, crates, getting your house ready and everything. But a lot of people, they want to, oh. they want to know about toys. What, what are your thoughts about toys, especially in regards to hunting? You know, what are your thoughts on squeaky toys and stuff like that? Okay. So I'll get to that in a second. So another point on management, another thing that I will do aside from crate training my dog is I will get something that's called an X pen. And so if you haven't seen these before, they're basically just like the wire pens that you can get. So they're an open top. They're not a crate, but they're basically a thing. Like I'll set it up in my living room. I'll set it up outside. And so the X pen is nice because I can allow the puppy to have some freedom in there without having to directly supervise them as much as though they were loose. I still have to supervise them, right? You don't ever want to leave your puppy unsupervised unless they're in an area like their crate where you know they can't get into anything. But the X pen is kind of like a nice kind of especially if you have other dogs in the house that are still getting used to puppy. Yeah. It kind of, it stops a lot of the conflict and it also keeps the puppy in an area, right? They can't sneak off behind the couch and pee on you really quick. And you don't even notice because again, you don't want to let them practice that behavior. So you do need to watch puppy in the X pen, make sure that they're not looking around, kind of sniffing, showing signs that they got to pee. And if they do get them out as fast as you can. Um, And so what I do in the X pen is I will put a bunch of toys in there. I'll put a dog bed in there. I can't even like dog beds are super important. And this is another reason you need to supervise your puppy in the X pen, because at that age, you're just going to probably use like just a soft pillow type bed, but you don't want them to learn to chew it. And you'll partially offset that by putting toys that are more interesting than the bed in there. But teaching your dog to go lay on a bed, this is a good thing to do is so huge. I use it. I use beds a lot for management with my older dogs, right? So if I need them out of the way, go to your bed, go to your bed. I have dog beds in every room in my house. Like when I first moved in with my boyfriend, I had like this huge stack of dog beds. (laughs) And then I'm like, Hmm, I need more dog beds. And I actually went out and I bought more dog beds. And he's like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) Don't judge me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Dog beds are a huge part of managing your your dogs in the house as adults. So get them in the habit as puppies. So the other thing you're going to have in this X pen is toys. Um, So not just toys. um, I like to feed a lot of raw bones. Um, you got to be careful, like with the type of raw bone you decide to feed. You got to make sure that it's um, like a weight bearing type bone, uh, so nothing that's going to break off and be brittle. Yeah, not um, one of those fake, you know, chemical raw hide just glued together stuff. 
that you know that I tell everybody yeah. stay away from from that stuff. You you need a a bone with substance is how I explain it, like a real bone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I'll actually keep them in the freezer so like when puppy starts teething, they love their frozen bones. Um, the other thing that I'll do too is I'll take like those Kong toys. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to make sure you get one that's appropriate for your dog. So if you've got a small puppy, get the puppy one because it's nice and soft and it's good on their teeth. And what I'll do is I'll stuff them full of peanut butter and throw them in the freezer. And I'll have like four or five in there that I just alternate through as soon as one's done, then I can just fill it, stick one back in the freezer and switch it right out. And the dogs just love those. And when they're frozen, they really have to work to get at it. And so this does two things. One, it keeps your puppy busy. (laughs) Two. It helps with their problem-solving skills. So once the peanut butter starts getting a little further in, they're like, this is hard to get to. And so they really have to like work to get in there so that they learn that there's stru- like there's reward in the struggle, right? Like I had to get I had to work to get to this, but here's a reward at the end of it. And so it gets your puppy's brain going a little bit. And I'll even expand on this a little bit more. And I will get toys like there's like little wobble toys that you fill with food and the puppy has to like knock it over to get the food out of them. And so I'll start with those just like, okay, you have to work to get to the food and I'll progressively make those toys harder and harder and harder and harder so that they've got to think like, okay, how does this work? And it really helps develop their problem solving skills, which will help you a lot in the field. Well, and I'm glad you went there because they're, they're, a lot of people, they don't really put enough thought into toys, in my opinion, because what you just said, it's a great example of you're planting seeds with these dogs and really instilling confidence and just intelligence with these dogs and really essentially a work ethic. But there are some toys out there that could, in a way, produce bad habits as well. Oh God, squeaky <laughs> toys were sent from Satan. Like, seriously. Like, okay, and I know there's somebody out there saying like, oh, I give my dog squeaky toys all the time and he's fine. Okay, so one of two things happen there. Either you got lucky and that does happen, right? Like giving your dog squeaky toys is not a guarantee that they're going to have a chompy retrieve. But okay, why take the risk? There's tons of other toys out Mm -hmm. there. Like if all I had, like if the only option for toys for my dog was squeaky toys, then okay, I would deal with it, but we're not, the situation is not that dire. Like there's so many other options out there. Do not give your dog squeaky toys. (laughs) Especially not like furry ones. Like if you have a bird dog or, you know, a squirrel dog or, or something, you know, that you don't want that hard mouth dog and you go buy a toy that just emulates what you're hunting that squeaks. You're literally teaching your dog that you get a reward by chomping on it. And like you said, some people get lucky or they correct it with training down the road. But it's like, why? why? Just just don't take the risk. Don't take, you know, the unnecessary step. You know, like you said, go get a bone or one of those Kong toys or something like that. Well, and even if you can train around it, why would you purposely create conflict that doesn't need to be there in exactly. your training? Yep. So it, 
That's what we're talking about really overall tonight is setting yourself up for success. Can you fix it later down the road? Absolutely. You know, there, that there are very few issues at this stage that you can develop that you can't fix later, but why create an issue that you have to fix later? You know, Mm -hmm. we're in this together. We're trying to make this the most like easy process and most successful process that we can. And so like, preventing headaches is just one measure, but you know, we're really after instilling good habits and planting seeds for down the road. And I know you, you, you're real big. You have these pre training exercises. I think you call them, you know, walk us through that and and tell us really, let's start with why you call it pre training exercise. So honestly, I don't even start, creating formal behaviors in a dog like my dog doesn't even know how to sit or lay down until they're like maybe five or six months old like i do not care about behavior creation at all in the puppy stages all i am trying to do is create confidence in a dog and an attitude about learning and working with me yep so I mean, with every dog, it varies. So this is going to be part of your socialization type stuff. But if I have a dog that, you know, I take out and I are like little puppy and I've got him outside and I let him off the leash. And the first thing he wants to do is just go zoom. Bye bye. I'm gone, mom. (laughs) See you later. (laughs) So I'm going to have to work on that dog with like, hey, you know what? I know there's cool stuff out there and that's good. I want you to think there's cool stuff out there. But I'm cool too here, buddy. <laughs> you you want to you wanna hang with me. You, you want to trust me and cooperate with me. Right. I do want my dogs to be around me to an extent. Like I do want my dogs to take off and leave, but I also want them to come back to me. And like, I mean, with puppies, I almost prefer, like with, especially with German short hairs, with most of them, I almost prefer that they're a little bit stickier than I'd yeah. like in the puppy yeah. phase because when they're adults, that goes that, away. It, go, it goes away real quick when they start getting that confidence. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I mean, it's like you said, you know, there is an element and I, I can't remember who, who really ingrained this in my head the most, but I tell people all the time, like dog training at, at, at its core, you know, you can get into the weeds and everything, but ultimately we're asking three things of these dogs. You're asking them to come back you're asking them to stay still and you're asking them to go away you know it really at its core Mm -hmm. that's the three things that as hunting dogs that's what we're asking of these dogs and so like what you're saying it's very important to instill that cooperation because there are three conflicting things that later on down the road you want to be able to to pretty much steer the dog for lack of a better term yep and like, you just want to create an overall attitude about learning too. Right. So like, I mean, I know when I was like, I was, I was never a big fan of school. I was always that kid that was sitting there watching the clock and not paying attention. How I got the good grades I did, I never know because I spent 90% of my time watching the clock going like, okay, when nope. can we get out of here? Probably because I flipped through the textbook a little bit when I got yeah. bored of watching yeah. the clock. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, so my point is, is like, I mean, you know how much I heard of the teacher talking? Absolutely wah, 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 zero. Wah. Because I wasn't paying attention. Exactly. Yep. It was Charlie Brown. And you cannot get, like, your dog isn't going to learn anything from you if you're not paying attention. Like, sure, you can try to force it a little bit and be like, no, you have to pay attention to me. 
but they learn so much better when they're a willing participant in this process. It's kind of like they learn how to learn. You're teaching the dog how to learn new concepts. Mm -hmm. And that comes from, from you and your routine and your habits and stuff like that. So, so jump into some of these pre-training exercises that you like to do with, with the end goal in mind. You know, it's, I call it planting seeds, but you know, you have specific exercises that you do that's not quote unquote training. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, one of the things that I'll do when my puppies are little, little is I will start playing with them with food a little bit. And all I do is I just, so in the early stages, I have to produce the food and be like, hey, puppy, what's this? And I give them the food, right? And so as we talked about, if you haven't listened to the uh, my other podcast there, I use what's called a conditioned reinforcer. So basically what this is, is it's a clicker or like a clicker or a word. I tend to use a word. My it's word is yes. Yeah. And so I'll just start. Yeah. And so what I'll do is I'll just say, yes, give the dog a piece of food. Yes give the dog a piece of food. Yes, give the dog a piece of food. And you do that enough times and classical conditioning starts to occur. And and eventually you'll get to the point where you say yes. And it's like you've just given that dog a piece of food. You still have to give the dog the piece of food. But that same, like that same response, like that physiological response that happens when the dog gets food happens when you say the word yes and so that's what we're looking for and what it does is it gives me a chance like in later on so i can say like if the dog sits and they're 20 yards away from me if i'm not using markers but i'm using food the dog sits he's 20 yards away from me and i say sit and he does and i gotta run over there and stuff food in the dog's (laughs) mouth well you're not going to do that with good timing if the dog's 20 yards away and he sits and i say yes now the dog can come running back to me get his food whatever reward I'm using. And he knows that that reward is for what he did way over there. So it's definitely worth the extra time to program this into your puppies. And so what I'll do from there is once I get yes, piece of food, yes, piece of food, yes, piece of food. And I see the dog starting to react to the word yes before the food even comes out. Then I'll start getting him to chase the food around in my hand a little bit and I'll like move my hand off to the side or I'll pull the, like I basically want to get the puppy following my hand. And so this does two things. A, it's super fun for the puppy to kind of chase the food around and it adds extra value to your reward because now it's not just about the food. Now there's a play element involved in this. And the other thing it does too is now I can lure my dog into different behaviors. I can make him sit. I can make him lay down. I can make him whoa. I can do all sorts of things just by move, just by getting him to follow the food in my hand. Oh, a- absolutely. And so essentially what you're doing is I, I call it charging the clicker. If you're going to use a clicker, uh, you use a verbal and I know plenty of people that do. Uh, the important thing with the verbal that I think would be it. it the timing is obviously important with all of this, but your tone, staying consistent with yep. it. You know, you don't, while you're doing this, you're not screaming, yes, or, you know, very just, yes. Like it's, it's a consistent expectation 
Right, you can scream yes yeah. if you want, You're but you have to scream yes every, every time. time. So <laughs> it's just pick your pick your normal one. So if you go the verbal route, that's fine. But you have to realize that like consistency matters in all this, not just the timing, but your tone, your volume, and and all that stuff. So. And you, and what you're doing is just like you're doing with the food in your hand. You're you're creating that chase. You're creating that dog figures out that he has to essentially perform a task for that reward. Just like what you're talking about with the Kong earlier, I have to work for that peanut butter. And we're like what you said. This is a pre-training exercise. We're not formalizing any training or behavior, but you're getting the dog to associate their actions with the reward at the end and they get what they want by essentially playing the game, right? Yep. And so the other thing that I'll do too is I'll get the puppy to start like not only following my hand, but following me. So when they get really good at this, one of the things I'll do is I'll run away from them. And movement is motivating to dogs, right? They automatically, like when I run away, they instinctively want to chase me. Like, yeah, this is fun. <laughs> so I've got that going. Like, so I've got that going so that they're instinctively going to want to chase me. And then when they catch me, yes, piece of food. Yes, piece of food. And I'll like run all over the place and get them to come with me. And they're like, yay, this is so much fun. And they don't even realize that they're <laughs> yeah, training. Right. This is fun. So... Yeah. And then what I'll do after that, and I kind of have them playing like really, really good. And they're like, okay, I know I like, I know what to expect from this game. I know the rules. So now I change the rules uh -oh. a little bit. So now what I'll do is I'll get them started and I'll get them chasing me and we'll do it. And then all of a sudden I'll just stop like a robot. Like I'll just turn off and go completely neutral. And so then what I want to see here is the puppies first kind of go like, what the heck? And then they're going to get frustrated. They're going to be like, do something. And I don't care what they do. As they, I just want to see them make an effort to try and get me to do something. And then as soon as they do that, like if they put a paw on me, even if they jump on me at this stage of the game, if they bark at me, if they offer a behavior like a sit or a lay down, I'll be like, yes. And then we'll take off and we'll start playing again. So I want the dog to t like to learn how to Push me for interact more. with you. Yeah. So you're, yeah. Cr you're creating I mean, that work ethic. Like we talked about with the Kong, you're creating that work ethic. It wants to be with you and it wants to work with you. It's like, do something. I don't, I'm sick. Like, let's go do something. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing with this too, is it also kind of helps to make the dog feel like they play an active role in the training, like things that they do actually make me do things and have effect on my behavior. So I essentially yeah. kind of let the dog think that they're training me yeah. a little bit. And the dog is way more interested in participating if they think that their behavior actually matters. Right. So you Jedi, you Jedi mind tricked them is what you did. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> so again, we're just talking about unformalized training right now. We're we're just establishing that connection and and kind of work ethic and building good uh, behavior. So, you know, so many people get these puppies home, and what do they do? Like the first night, like I have to establish dominance. You have to learn sit tonight. You know, it, how many people have you heard talk about like my dog knew sit the first night I got home with it. What, why do we not want to rush this and take unnecessary steps? Like, what is the drawback to really 
trying to formalize some behavior very early on. You're teaching your puppy algebra before you've even taught them to add. Like, and there's two ways that can go this. There's people that get their puppy home and they want to get started on the behaviors right away. And they're all excited. And it, like your dog doesn't even know how to dog yet. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. <laughs> I like that. Right. There's, they just left their litter there. It's the first time that they've been anywhere except for with their mom and their litter mates in that one environment. And I mean, this is the first time they've really experienced change and it's hard on them. And so what you need to focus on is just getting them to develop a good relationship with you. So, and which brings me to my second point, like there's those types of people. And then there's the other types of people that bring puppy home and they're like, Hey friend, welcome to your Do new home. You want. <laughs> exactly. Right. So like my puppy sleep in the crate at night and uh, so my brother thought I was a monster for this. Like, how dare you make that poor little puppy stay in that cage by himself all night? Oh, like, yeah. oh, oh, there were times it got ugly. Like, cause he, <laughs> like, he thought I was a total monster. And like, I mean, when we were kids, the only dog that he really had much and like, we didn't get this dog till he was like even five months old. So he wasn't even a puppy. So, my brother had a lot of ideas, not a lot of reality. <laughs> yep. And like, he just, he thought I was a total monster for creating this dog. And then, um, so again, creating overnight because I can't supervise the puppy overnight. It's not even a dominance thing. Like, Oh, this is my house. You have to sleep on the more uncomfortable spot while I sleep on the comfortable spot. <laughs> right. And it also get like, I mean, your puppy needs to learn how to be alone too. Right. You see these dogs that just turn into these neurotic basket cases because they have no idea how to be alone. They were never taught that skill set that being alone is okay and they don't need to panic about it. And just the amount of sleep and rest that puppies need. The average person does not recognize it. You got to think what's going on in that puppy, how fast they're growing. Literally, like you said, they're the dog is learning to be a dog. They're they're learning the world. And exactly. just think about how you feel after a long day at work, just how mentally fried you are. You need a break. The puppies, while growing mentally and physically, they need that rest time and having a good space that they can call their own and it's their quiet time. That is them learning that off switch that we covet so much when the dog is fully grown. And like you said, it's not so much... You're creating good habits for later on, but it's also if you have a puppy and you have it in the crate while you're sleeping, you're preventing creating bad habits that you have to then correct later on down the road. Yeah. And so like my brother kind of got a few lessons with this too, because he like when I wasn't home, he would let the puppy out of the crate and then he'd go downstairs to play on his computer and the puppy would just have free run of the house. Yep, yep. <laughs> And it would be tell- everywhere, and then it would be like, "Oh well, he's your dog. You clean up the pee." Like, well, yep. <laughs> you did it. You you caused it. Well, he well, got and- him really good one time because we were renovating the house and we had all the baseboards off, and there was like a tiny little hole in the wall between where the floor and the wall met, and so yeah. he decided to pee on the wall right where that hole was, and my brother's had a bunch of stuff underneath there and he was in there at the time Uh-oh. and he got piddled on. 
<laughs> karma right there. <laughs> yep. But 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 it's you know so much of this puppy. I tell everybody like you know you, you get these puppies and we get especially the people that are getting these hunting dogs. We have these grand scheme, you know, not schemes, but grand dreams mm-hmm. and hope and plans with these dogs and you want to jump in as soon as you get this puppy because you've spent years sometimes planning this dog out and it's just like slow down take a deep breath let the puppy be a puppy and you're not training at day one you're just establishing boundaries the dog is learning the world and they're Mm -hmm. learning the routine with you so it's very important to just take your time and do this pre-training deal and slowly over time like you said that you go like four five six months in before you really start formalizing anything i'm not gonna say i wait long myself but like i do take a little bit longer than a lot of people to start formalizing Oh man, when I was planning what I wanted to say in this podcast, like it wasn't a matter of thinking of what I wanted to say. It was thinking of how I'm going to compact this into the confines of this podcast. <laughs> like there's so much stuff I do with the puppies and like play is such a huge one because I mean, so many people just totally undervalue play and that having that the dog having good feelings towards play is so important. Like for me, it's particularly important, but I mean, even if you don't do the kinds of things that I do with my dogs, like play is a, it's exercise. B it's forming a relationship with your dog and C in my case, it's building the foundation for structured games later on that I use for, um, like rewards for obedience or even in some cases like behaviors on birds that I want to pull them off the bird and get them to come play with me in some cases. And you can't do that without structured play. And you can't do that if your dog doesn't want to play with you. Cause if your dog doesn't want to play with you, it's not very rewarding. And with a lot of these working dogs, one of the pitfalls with food is so like food works really good when they're puppies. And I use food a lot when they're puppies, but they, as they mature, they go through this thing where the food really starts to lose its value, which is part of why I like to attach play to the food. Um, And play really increases in value. And you don't see this as much in pet dogs. Like a lot of pet dogs will keep their food drive all the way through their lives. Um, But typically most of our working breeds will significantly value play over food any day of the week. Like, I mean, I did a lot of food shaping exercises with my German short hair when he was a puppy. And like when we're in the field, he could care less if I pulled out a steak. Oh yeah. Not, not at all. Well, I don't know about a steak. A a lot of dogs will eat a steak, but like if you try and give them a piece of kibble, like give me a break, they're not going to take that. (laughs) Oh God. Like, no, even a steak, not, he not interested, no food whatsoever. Yeah. Now, I mean, you have to make that transition because these dogs on average, the, the I would say the majority of them, not even the average, but the vast majority of them, they, they're going to value the work and the, and the drive and the hunt more so than the food. So you have to learn, you have to be able to read your dog and learn how to, to reward the behavior that you want. Uh, but conversely on the opposite side of this, and, and I, we, we kind of dug deeper on this on your last podcast but you know we've talked primarily just reward so far but 
you know, especially for first time puppy owners, they are so quick to correct puppies. What is, in your opinion, the correct way to encourage the good, but discourage the bad also? So we really don't want to go correcting puppies. Um, because in order for a correction to be effective, like, well, I mean, they'll be effective. What's the word I'm trying to look for? But in order for a correction to really do us any favors in our dog training, they need, the dog needs to understand what the correction is, why they got the correction, and how to avoid it. Puppies don't have a clue. You haven't taught them this yet. And so as far, like, I mean, if you go and you correct that puppy by going, no, it's swatting it on the nose, like they might be okay with it, but they're looking at you and being like, this person is unpredictable and unstable and I don't like this. And it really damages your relationship going forward. And so a lot of times what we'll do, like, okay, so management seriously prevents so many things from going wrong. Like they can't pick up bad habits if they don't have a chance to rehearse them. Like, well, they can, but again, like you have to manage them a little bit less when they're older, but in puppies, the habits that they pick up in puppyhoods during that critical development period in the first six months are the habits that carry the most weight with them for the course of their lives. So you can change them later on, but it's going to be really hard. So try to get those good habits into your puppy early. So what I'll do is if I catch my dog chewing on my shoe at the front door, well, A, my fault, puppy wasn't being managed. I allowed that the puppy to get that far that it was chewing on my shoe in the first place. So if anything, I should roll up the newspaper and swap myself across the nose. <laughs> B, I left my shoe out where the puppy could get it. So again, my fault, not the puppies. The puppy doesn't know any better. But I mean, we're all human. You're going to mess up. And all you can do is try to make the best of it when you do. <laughs> and, and, and that specific example, I, I know you're, you're going down making a point, but I want to throw in that, that specific example because between housebreaking and puppies chewing on stuff, the, those are probably the most two, two uh, biggest first thoughts that I have when people correct puppies. If you go and swat that dog on the nose for picking something up with its mouth and we're trying to encourage hunting dogs, you are literally correcting the puppy putting something in its mouth. So it is a very high chance of that dog associating putting something in its mouth with getting corrected. And nine, 99% of these people that get hunting dogs want that retriever. You know, they, they value retrieving more than hunting a lot of the time when they first get these dogs. Do not go swat the dog for putting something in its mouth. Nope, do not do that. You're exactly bang on there. And so what you do want to do, so now we've covered what not to do. So now what you do want to do is take one of puppy's favorite toys, take that Kong full of peanut butter and say, here, how about this instead? I'll give you a trade. Take the shoe away. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Like, I mean, it's okay that you want to do that behavior. I mean, especially with our gun dogs, they want to put their mouths on everything. We bred oh, them like that on purpose. Encourage that. Yes. <laughs> like, 
So, I mean, it's okay. You want to chew. Puppies need to chew, especially when they're teething. Like this is a behavior that they need to do. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with this behavior. Just do it on this. Yes. Not on my shoe. <laughs> well, it, but there is teething on objects and toys and shoes and so on and so forth. A lot of people, what do you do? What's the, the correct way to handle a, a young puppy with their sharp puppy teeth teething on your hand or your ear or something like that? How do we correct that? Because it, it is kind of setting up that relationship between you and puppy. And we just said you don't get on the dog for, for chewing on something, but you know, what's the correct way to handle that? So basically same thing, right here, try this instead, right? Replace it with something else. Like I know you want to play with this, or maybe the puppy's just telling you that you want to play, that they want to play with you. Right. So in which case I would then like, I mean, I try to be careful about letting my puppies demand when they want to play, but in this stage, it's really not that big of a deal. Like I will go into the, parameters of how to initiate play later on with the dog but i mean if that puppy really needs to play and they're chewing on you then i mean puppy needs exercise so even if you don't play with them like maybe give the puppy some exercise maybe that's what they're trying to tell you right so don't correct them through that the other thing i'll I'll do too that's really hard because those little puppy teeth do hurt and it's really hard not when they bite you to not go ouch that hurts so what you're doing there is you are actually giving the dog reward by reacting to what they did. They realize that when they bit you, they got a response out of you and they're like, yep. mm. right? So if you can avoid it, just don't react, right? Take your hand out of the dog's mouth, put something else in it or take them and play with them, whatever you're going to do. Yeah. No, a- the- absolutely. The only time I will ever give a puppy a correction is in a situation like that. So say that puppy, I've redirected, I've redirected, I've redirected, but they still think it's really funny to come running up to me and bite me and make me go ouch because you can, you can only not go ouch so many times so much, (laughs) right? Like sometimes it really does hurt and you just go ouch without even thinking about it. And sometimes, especially like Malinois puppies and stuff like this, they will, think this is just hilarious so at this point it's a self-reinforcing behavior right it's that behavior that they're after and you redirecting is not going to help you any with that so in that case i will correct the puppy but it's not like a how dare you smack throw it across the room like you don't so when you do correct the puppy you want to make your point like yeah you bet you're not going to do that again but you also don't want them hiding under the couch, like terrified of you either. So you really have to watch the level of your correction. So I'm going to tell you what I do when it gets to that point. And you can tell me if, if I'm just a horrible person or horrible trainer. Uh, So what I've done uh, with a few puppies at this point is when it gets to that point, you know, when they're, like you said, itty bitty and they don't know any better. It's just like you try and redirect, you know, shove them off, give them something that they can't chew on. But it does reach that point to where like, okay, you're going to stop this. Yeah, I don't swat them. I usually don't eat, like I might give them an at, at 
or something. But like you said, the corrections at this point doesn't really go too far. So usually I don't even do a verbal. I just take take their uh, jowls and just write just kind of gently underneath their sharp puppy teeth, just kind of pull it up a little bit just for them to kind of back off like, oh, teeth hurt <laughs> and and it, it stops them. And, but, you know, that that may be a little too much for some people, but I find it, it corrects the problem really easy and it's really not that pressure driven. And like you said, they're not going to end up under the couch cowering away. Honestly, it's not the end of the world. The only reason I wouldn't do it that way is if you teach your retrieve behaviors through the use of force fetch, sometimes if you like, sometimes it can create a little bit of, I don't want this guy handling my mouth. Cause the last time he did that, it hurt. Like I'm, yeah. you can get them over yeah. that. It's not the end of the world, but again, like why create, create conflict there if it doesn't need to be there. Yeah. Yep. No, that's true. I didn't think about that because the first step in force fetch or hold is you're, you're putting the hand in the mouth. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so interesting take on that, but uh, so, you know, we've touched on a lot tonight. Uh, mainly about moving too fast. But is there scenarios, and we kind of talked about the person that just kind of gives these puppies and dogs free reign, like my house is your house. Do whatever you want. My dog can do no wrong. But is that the same as a person maybe moving too slow with the training? You know, that person's really like about no training. Can somebody really move too slow and miss opportunity? Because that's we hear that a lot from people, you know, you get the people that just don't want to mess up and you get people that, is it too late for my dog to be a good hunting dog? And it's, you know, eight months old. Well, I mean, as long as you've done the foundation work, I mean, so if you're like slowly plugging along, like it gets to a point where, you know, you've just taught your dog to sit and it's 12 years old. Like, well, yeah. Maybe you're moving a little bit too slow here. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, so that first six months is really super, super important. And I mean, one of the biggest mistakes that I see people make during that window, um, not necessarily like, is they'll do stuff with the dog, but they kind of just like, sit back and wait for the dog to show them that they're worth it to train. And I don't agree with that approach whatsoever. So like I was talking about with that trainer I used to work for when I was still in the racehorses, like, I mean, we did a lot with building confidence, building good behaviors, all that kind of stuff. And we didn't just sit around and wait for them to prove it. We like they, from the minute they walked in that barn, it's like, okay, you know what? We own this horse now. We need to train this horse. And our thousand dollar buys got treated the same as our forty thousand dollar buys. They mm-hmm. were treated like champions until they showed us otherwise. And it's really important to do this, I think, um, because there's a lot of puppy tests out there that I'm sure people have heard of, right? Like you do the, and they talked about it with um, the Carters last week, right? Where you got all the puppy tests where you want to flip them on its back or you do the umbrella (laughs) stuff or whatever. Right. Uh, There was a guy, his name's uh, Dr. Stuart Hilliard and he was working, I think it was with the air force when he was doing this research. But anyway, he did a ton of research on these puppy tests 
and whether or not they actually revealed anything about a dog's working potential. And they don't that they discovered that they really don't like they can tell you things about a dog's personality. Right. So if you have a dog that's maybe a little fearful at first, that could just be a stage of immaturity, right? That dog might not be anything like that three months from now. Right. So they, cause they're just, they're so rapidly maturing and developing that. I mean, there's some things like, so when the Carters were talking about like picking owners for puppies, there's some things that, so if you have a puppy that's like really kind of guardy with its food, maybe don't put that dog in a home with young kids. Like, I mean, that puppy might not be like that in a couple months. Like that might totally turn around and be totally different. You don't know, but at the same, or it could be a son. Well, and I mean, because the behavior's there, it's also a risk that the kids could also kind of add fuel to the fire there. And when it would have changed, maybe it doesn't because now we've added to it. But as far as their working potential is concerned, you can't tell anything about what those dogs are going to be like when they're six, eight months old and how they're going to be as working dogs and what their aptitude is for working. And they said about the 14 week mark, you started to see some stuff. But I mean, you, you can't make a judgment until that dog is about six to eight months old. So until that dog is six to eight months old, you need to treat that dog like it is the next big champion. Like this is going to be your dog. That This is the dog that is just going to destroy the world. And then six to eight months, then we'll make some yeah. judgment calls if it's not working out. Like, the, and it, and I mean, here again, with the breeding, breeding can provide a lot of insight. So like there's some bloodlines where it's like, okay, if I haven't seen this by X amount of time, like I'll give them a little extra time, but you know, just from their bloodline, like if you haven't seen X by certain period of time, probably not going to work out. And I mean, I've seen cases, there was one, oh God, there was one blind bloodline of these thoroughbreds. Uh, the stallion's name was Thunder Gulch. And every time we got babies out of him that would come to the track for training. So the two-year-olds would train later in the morning after all the older horses would go. And so it's like 10 o'clock in the morning and you would have to kick these things out of bed and be like, get up. It's time to go train. Like, So, I mean, if you don't know this bloodline, you're like, oh God, this horse is going to be a disaster. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, Angie, I mean, we've covered a lot of ground here tonight. And uh, so before I let you go, though, it, you know, now now's the time to if you haven't pissed off somebody already, now's the time to really piss off somebody. I want to get what what you have to you have to drill it down to one. What is your number one pet peeve training exercise okay. that you hear all the time that a puppy owner has to do with their hunting dog? Like if you could just get rid of one, throw it in the trash and it just, the human brain just forgot it. What would it be? Honestly, a lot of the time, like the way people treat play retrieving with their dog really bothers me. In what way? And so they'll be like, oh yeah, you know, my puppy is so like, he's play retrieving so good. And we're like, we throw so many bumpers for him a day. And it's like, okay, for one. Do you have any idea how bad that is for a developing puppy that hasn't finished their modeling stage yet to be doing that running back and forth? 
and they'll like kill the drive and their dog by like, yay, look at my dog retrieve, look at my dog retrieve, look at my dog retrieve. It kind of loses its luster, right? The, uh, a puppy can lose interest just because you've done way too mm-hmm. many fun retrieves for them. Mm-hmm. So would you get rid of fun retrieves at that early stage altogether or just limit how often and how many reps they do? I would change the way people introduce it, period. So, okay, so now I'm probably going to get some people <laughs> pissed off at me here. <laughs> so people just like, they start throwing stuff, right? And the dog goes out and they chase it. And then they're concerned, well, and now there's a thing involved in the retrieve, right? So now the dog has to bring it back. And if it doesn't, the dog's learning bad habits. But if they, right? Yep. Sorry, I, I kind of got my tongue tied there. So <laughs> they have to retrieve the item and bring it back to you because if they learn to just run off with the item, then they're learning bad habits. But people think that they need to throw this item. So like what I'll do with my dog. So my retrieving program is a little different, but one of the things that I'll do that regardless of how you teach your retrieve, you can start with these puppies is what I call the food throw game. So once I've got these puppies really engaging with me really well, one of the things I'll do is I will drop a piece of food on the floor and I'll run away. And then the puppy comes back. And then as soon as the puppy gets to me, cause they'll pick up a piece of food and they'll jump, 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 jump. And then they'll come up to me and I'll give them another piece of food. So for this exercise in particular, it's really important that your pieces of food can basically be eaten in one quick gulp. Yeah. So you got to watch your food size. And then what I'll build into is instead of just dropping the piece of food, I'll throw it like a foot away and run away. And then I'll gradually start throwing it further and further and further until I'm like throwing that piece of food across the kitchen and the puppy's running out to go and get this piece of food as fast as they can. And then they know they pick it up and then they come running back to me as fast as they can because they know there's more reward when they get back. And so that way we now get to build that behavior of I go out and I get something and I come straight back and there's no item in the mix, right? They still get the fun of going out and getting something and coming back, but there's no item in the mix. And this game has, honestly, I I will never go through it. I I don't think I will ever raise a puppy without playing this game with them because there was times with my German short hair pointer in the early stages where he would have a bird in his mouth and like you could see the wheels turning. He's like, I don't know if I really want to bring this bird back to mom, but I don't know what else I could do. Yep. <laughs> right? It's just that pattern of I go out and I get something and I come straight back was just so hammered into him before there was ever retrieve item in his mouth. And this is the part that's going to get me flax. So with my play exercise, what I will do with my dogs is I will actually integrate my tug, my retrieve, like, so just play retrieving. This is not formal retrieving training, but just in my play retrieve, I will integrate it into a game of tug of war. Oh, and so now you, now you said it. You- <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you just had so many people just get pissed off. <laughs> oh, wait till I wait till I tell you the next part. <laughs> um, so basically what I'll do is I'll get them tugging really good and I'll just let the tug go and I'll run away and they've got to run back into me with the tug, right? Get them tugging really good, let them go. And so 
I'm not saying that you should go start playing tug of war with your gun dog right now because bat like, okay. So tug of war has a really profound effect on your dog's retrieving behaviors, which is why it is so kind of taboo in the gun dog world is because gun dog don't gun dog trainers don't have tug of war skills. Yeah. And they, what, like, why would they? And, and, right? and it's important to so, note you came from the Schutzen world and that is a form of reward for a lot of Schutzen trainers is that tug of war. So, you know, coming from the world that I yeah. come from, I probably wouldn't even have the good timing that it takes with tug of war and the purpose of it. I, I would probably just fumble that all to hell and back. <laughs> right. So there needs to be rules around the game. Like I said, this is a very carefully constructed game that I've been building since puppyhood. And the other thing that I'll do with the tug of war too. So like people like do what I like to call washboarding the puppies, right? So the puppy will be pulling on the tug and then people will push into its mouth. Yep. That is where a lot of your problems start. You ever seen a rabbit jump into a dog's mouth? <laughs> Not a good reaction by the dog for the rabbit. <laughs> no, right? So you always want to be pulling away, right? And so what happens is, is if you're careful with how you build the rules around this game, the dog now learns that, okay, I am on this tug. I have to keep my grip. And I cannot chomp on the grip because chomping on the grip loses the toy. Right. So I do a lot to make sure that they have a nice, calm, steady grip on my tug. And it's also worth noting that my tug toys are never formal retrieving toys ever, 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 ever. Those are two completely separate things. I have special tug of war toys. So I have this nice bite, like I have this nice grip developed on the toy where they don't want to mouth around and chomp on it. So, and then what I can do is. It actually helps my retrieve because now the dog learns that even when they're in an incredibly high state of arousal, my mouth needs to stay quiet. Makes sense. And that's where I see a lot of problems with retrieves in, I mean, so I hate to lump force fetch and like all force fetch dogs do this because that's not true. Like, some people are better at it than others as with any type, any training technique, right? Some people are just better at it than others. But one thing that I do notice with a lot of gun dogs in general is their retrieves are great until you amp up the energy and they get really excited. And then they're like gnawing on these birds because they're so excited and they don't, their mouths just start going, right? So with the tug of war, we can now use that actually prevent that problem so like don't jump into this without at least calling me and talking to me first like you can find my information on facebook like don't just start doing this that's exactly what i was about to say it's like now as a caveat would you advise the average first time dog owner to even attempt this because i'm sitting here like no (laughs) don't do this I do it with a lot of first time gun dog owners, but not like, I mean, I don't just be like, oh yeah, play tug of war with your gun dog. Bye. <laughs> have a nice day. Right. These are people that I work with a lot yeah. that I've said, okay, this is the process that I like to use. This is how we do it. And they, if they want to commit to what that is, then I will show them how to do it. And we have a lot of success with it. 
And so it also builds into the way I train and retrieve. So this is the part that's also going to have people pulling their hair out. <laughs> I don't force. Oh fetch. no. <laughs> now. How dare you? Okay. So now, <laughs> right. So before people start losing their marbles and I start getting all the hate mail about force fetch is more than just retrieve training, which it is. And I understand that. And it's not that I'm not teaching a formal retrieve. Okay. <laughs> and it's not that I'm not addressing all these issues that force fetch helps address, right? I'm just doing it in different ways that fit with my program a little bit better. So my, like my retrieve training is basically, um, if you've ever heard of it, like the clicked retrieve or it's also called unforced force fetch, where we basically use the clicker to mark the behavior in the word in um, to mark the behavior in the right context with the items and when they're holding the items correctly. And I personally prefer to do it that way. And I will layer the pressure over after the fact. So you're still doing pressure, but you just go about it a different mm. way to yes. get to when you're applying the pressure, essentially. Yeah. And so the other thing that I'll do too, like my puppies first, like their very, very first introduction to pressure. And I'll actually, I wanted to make sure that I included this in this podcast is all my puppies are on harnesses until basically till they start pulling my arm off. And I'm like, okay, this is okay. enough of this. <laughs> and they're just, I put them on a harness and not a front attach harness, a harness that attaches from the back that they can pull on. And you can just pull to your heart's content all you want. Pull, 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 pull. I don't care. And then when I get sick of that, because they're starting to get a little big and I'm like, all right, that's enough of this stuff. Now I will take my collar and my leash out and I will start introducing them to the collar and the leash. And basically what I do is I put the collar on and I tighten up the leash just to get them to like, so if they're sit, like they're standing in front of me, I'll tighten up the leash to try and pull them towards me. And at this stage, they've never had a collar and a leash on in their life. They've always been on a harness. So now they have no idea what to do. And what they're going to do is one of two things. They're either going to lock up and they're going to freeze. Or they're going to start flailing like little wild puppies and freaking out like I'm killing them. And all you do is you just sit there with the pressure on and you wait until they're done. And eventually they're just going to be, well, not even until they calm down. Like the, the brain will start to think and they'll be like, okay, this isn't working. Why can't I get out of this? So it's really important to make sure that when you do this, I use a slip lead because that way, or a martingale collar so that the puppy can't wriggle out of it. Because <laughs> if they do, this is going to backfire on you really badly. Um, but yeah, just let them fight. And then they'll kind of start coming around and they'll be like, hey, this isn't working. And a lot of times this is like, if you had a puppy that was struggling, they'll freeze up. And they'll keep pulling back against it. And eventually they'll just be like, yeah. and they'll take a step forward. And then I release the pressure and yay, piece of food, right? And so now I keep doing this, right? I'll pull the dog towards me. I'll lead the dog away from me. I'll pull the dog across the front of me. And so now I've got a dog that I can move all sorts of different directions and position different ways just with leash pressure. Yep. And then I'd have a dog that doesn't pull on the leash. And I have a dog that's been introduced to pressure in a context that's away from any of my other obedience behaviors. Gotcha. 
I love it. I, I love talking to people like you who really understand the, uh, the behavior and training theory and learning uh, theory, whatever you want to call it. It's everybody calls it something different, uh, but also has different methods. And like it, just like what you said, you know, you don't do your typical force fetch program, but you understand it and there's there's benefits to it. You just do it slightly different. And that's I love talking to people like that to where it's just you have your own method of doing it, but the why is still the right. same or or there, really. And I'm not even saying that my way of doing it works better than the force fetch. Like I mean I think so, but I'm sure there's people out there that would beg to differ. And I mean, there are people out there that use force fetch that do have a better retrieve than I do. But what I can tell you is my way is way more fun. <laughs> <laughs> there you so, go. Well, you, you, you started to say it a second ago. Go ahead and tell everybody where they can find you and find more information and reach out to where maybe they want to learn how to uh, play tug of war with their dog in a correct manner. So you can find me on Facebook, just Elite Gun Dogs. Um, I did change my website. I downgraded it to one of those free ones. Um, so I just have to actually look up. I don't even know what my website is off by heart right now. Oh, here it is. So it's elite sport dogs.wixsite.com slash gun dog training is what my website address is now. <laughs> Sounds like a very Canadian website. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, Angie, I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun, just like last time, and I'm sure we'll we'll have to have you back on and and go over some more of these crazy methods that uh, <laughs> you know may or may not be great for uh, for your average, especially beginner gun dog trainer. But uh, I, I enjoyed it, and thanks for making time for us. Again. Uh, I mean, it's different for everybody, right? Like some people prefer to do it my way, some people don't. I mean, one way isn't any better than the other. You either have respect for the dog you're training and do a good job with it or you don't how you get there doesn't matter it's the it's the why and we call it gun dog it yourself and i also say it's you know it's a synonym for gun dog it your way uh, as long as it's safe legal and fun mm-hmm. go for it yep. yep all right angie well we'll talk soon appreciate it again no problem it was good to be back again Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us and our partners on Facebook and Instagram under Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to contribute even more to the future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Gundog It Yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again in a year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. 
I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.